Okay. Hi, Erin. Welcome. Okay, everybody. Here we are. We are on verse, we're on chapter 16, verse 25, and we're going to do 25 and 26 together as the commentary puts them together. Um, and as I was saying, tonight starts the holiday of Shavuot, which is the holiday of the celebration of receiving the Torah at Mount Sinai. I believe it's 3,334 years ago. Um, uh, 35, 35 years ago. And so uh, it's a perfect celebration of uh, anticipating the holiday of Shavuot. Uh, and especially, I will say that it's an especially appropriate time to celebrate and study Musr because the seven weeks from Passover to Shavuot were supposed to be, there, there is a period of time called Sefirat HaOmer, the counting of the Omer. We count 49 days from Passover to Shavuot. And during that time, the idea is that we're supposed to be preparing ourselves to receive the Torah. And how do we prepare ourselves to receive the Torah? By preparing our character traits. So the seven character traits that we work on during those seven weeks are kindness and boundaries and balance, um, long-term beauty, short-term beauty, uh, self-control, and royalty. So, and each of those is obviously a whole big topic unto itself. Um, but so it's, it's a very appropriate time to be studying Musr because in preparation for receiving the Torah and each year on the holiday of Shavuot, you know, one is invited to consider recommitting themselves to their Judaism and recommitting themselves to mitzvot and good deeds and Torah study. So it's a very appropriate time to be doing so. Okay. Welcome Naomi and Karen. It's good to see you guys here. All right. 25 and 26. There is a way which seems right to a man, yet its end are the ways of death. Right? So this is what we call the shortcut that's really a long cut. Right? Hi, Tova. Hi, Tova. It's not sure if you heard me. <laughs> and hi, Karen. So what this means is that sometimes we do something because we think that it'll be a shortcut. It'll be like a really, you know, how does it say? Uh, seems right. The words in Hebrew are yesh derech yashar. It seems straight, right? It seems like the right path. And then as you continue on, you realize, no, this is not a time saver. This is actually, you know, this is actually going to take twice as long now and it's going to be laborious and burdensome. And this is not at all what I had in mind. So, and then the 26 says, nefesh amel amlabo, a toiling soul toils for him. He for his mouth compels him. So here we have this situation where a person's mouth, which can mean different things. Sometimes it means the power of speech. Malbum explains this to mean your appetite, right? Not just an appetite for physical things, but, but an appetite for lustful cravings or the desire for revenge. And that these kinds of things can take you down a path where at first you're like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. This feels amazing. I love this. This is so exciting and delicious. And then you realize afterwards, this is terrible. I just dug myself into a gigantic hole, you know, that I can't climb out of. So um, just because something seems good, it doesn't mean it is good. Just because it seems straight doesn't mean it is straight. Um, I was talking to my daughter earlier today about something called the halo effect. The halo effect is something where you know, we, we, we see a person who is busted for, you know, whether it's fraud or, um, 
you know, sexual crimes or whatever the case may be. And people, how did that person get away with it for so long? Because they had something that's called the, the halo effect. Oh, there's, there's Yitzi. Hi, Yitzi. We were just talking about this earlier. What that means is that this person seemed to be so good or, you know, such a prominent person in the community or a person who's doing so much good in the world or everybody likes them or they're so smart or they must really know what they're talking about. And therefore, people give them a pass over and over and over again because they have this like fake halo over their heads where people think they can do no wrong. So even when, you know, all the signs are staring them in the face, right? You're, you're still going to make excuses for that person and you're still going to say, no, it's fine. This is good. This is Yashar. This is straight, right? The, the Hebrew word in the verse is Yashar. Yashar means straight, meaning like, you know, on the straight and narrow, you're on the right path. You're doing the right thing, right? We're on page 174. And so this person ends up getting away with so much because it seems so good and so right because people falsely make the assumption that a person like that could do no harm. Right. So, of course, how do we combat the halo effect? We combat the halo effect, not by looking at our assumptions or impressions, but by looking at the facts. You know, it is a fact. Research demonstrates this over and over and over again, that generally speaking, not every time, generally speaking, people who win the lottery end up more upset and depressed and impoverished or whatever, you know, whatever state they were in before. Um, than before they started, right? And yet what happens? Everybody says, oh, I wouldn't be like that. Oh no, I would be the exception to the rule. Of course, I would be the one person who actually knows how to handle sudden wealth and I would be totally fine. So that's an opinion. That's not a fact, right? You have to look at the facts. You know, when I think about Bernie Madoff, who's one of my most favorite Musser examples ever because his story checks so many boxes. The real facts, I mean, you don't need to know that much about math to look at his story and say to yourself, this was too good to be true. It didn't make any sense that his investments were offering the returns that they were offering when nobody else could promise those returns on investment. It didn't make any sense, right? And yet what happens? People look at this and it says, it seems right. There is a way which seems right to a man, but you, you look at Bernie Madoff and he had the ultimate halo effect. Everybody's like, well, that, that seems, yeah, he seems like he knows what he's talking about. Oh, sure. A guy like him, of course. But facts don't lie. So when you say to yourself, well, this person seems to manage to get away with it. And that person seems to manage to get away with it. It seems yashar. It seems okay. It seems good. It seems straight. Right. But look at the facts. And the facts is that it's end are the ways of death. There is no good way. There is no good way to extricate yourself from that right? If something seems too good to be true, it is. If something seems like a scam, it is. Amazon is not giving billions of people $25 gift cards because guess what? Then Amazon would go bankrupt. So if it seems to be too good to be true, it is, right? So, and the problem is, as it says in, the, in 26, a toiling soul toils for him. You're working so hard for your mouth compels him. The mouth represents the appetite. Why do people get sucked in to these messes because they have an appetite, an appetite for wealth, an appetite for lust, an appetite for greed, an appetite for honor and glory. And so their appetites lead them down a negative path, which is very hard to dig themselves out of later. Okay, so let's go to the commentary. 
This is what the wise in heart says. So in the previous verses, we were talking about the person who's wise in their heart, meaning that not only do they have the wisdom in their head, but they've managed to bring their wisdom down to their heart, like in their most instinctive place of emotion, they know, they feel what's right and what's wrong, right? So this, this teaching here comes from the wisest place. The pursuit of materialistic pleasures is doomed to end in death. We're not talking about physical death here. We're talking about spiritual death. A person who is unable to say no to his materialistic, lustful, sexual appetites is a person who's going to get himself into big trouble. Um, Rabbi Abraham, Rabbi Dr. Abraham J. Tversky, who was uh, both a rabbi and a physician, he worked very, very much with addictions. He would tell stories of people who were longtime smokers and they had these diseases. They were literally dying. And they could have reversed their physical symptoms if they could stop smoking and they did not stop smoking. As they were wheeling them into the hospital in a wheelchair, they were still smoking. So this is a person who values his appetite more than he values his life. So sometimes it is physical death, right? But even if it's not physical death, it's definitely spiritual death because a person who doesn't know how to say no to their appetites is a person who's going to really have a very hard time succeeding spiritually. And actually Judaism is like a whole program of saying no to your appetites. Let's start with kosher eating. There are certain things you can't have, right? You can't have meat and milk together. You say a blessing before you eat. So you have to wait right? You, you, a lot of people don't eat uh, meat, a dairy after meat. We have, um, we want to curb our appetites when it comes to speech. You have to really think about what you're going to say. Is this true? Is it kind? Is it necessary? Right? We certainly have a whole boatload of restrictions sexually. That sexuality should be in the context of a loving monogamous relationship and not casual and certainly not non-consensual. So we have so many different aspects of Judaism, right? Think about Shabbat, where we're invited to refrain from all kinds of activities, from going to work and from engaging in commerce and from using electronics and from driving. And all of these things are exercises in self-control and in mindful living. You can't just indulge every craving that you have when you have it. You have to learn to wait. You have to delay gratification. And that's how you become a mature and spiritually refined human being. Okay, the commentaries. The pursuit of materialistic pleasure is doomed to end in death, physical death, the end of every man, and spiritual death for the waste of spiritual uh, spiritual energies in physical pursuit, right? You think sometimes of creativity, how creative people are when it comes to doing the wrong thing. You know, I see sometimes these like doctored up videos you know, that people post online in order to, in order to make it look like something is true or not true or whatever. And it's like, wow, imagine if people use their talents. Imagine if they brought their talents to spirituality, right? Wouldn't that be incredible? Nothing could be more irrational than to put all our spiritual energies to work to satisfy the cravings of the mouth, the appetite. Since a person's essential part is his soul, He should obviously invest all his energies in developing this element, even at the cost of his physical satisfaction, right? If you think about what is the true essential part of you, 
the true essential part of you is not your physical self. First of all, even while you're alive, that's really not the main version of you. If something happens to your body, you're still you, right? If something happens to your face or, you know, something happens, you, you're, you're, let's say people are on medication and their bodies change. They lose a lot of weight. They gain a lot of weight and they look different. Their bodies change. It's still the same person. There's nothing different about that person, right? You look at people with different skin color. They're all the same human being. There's nothing essentially different about a human being because he looks different. So why would we sacrifice our soul for our body when our body is not the main part of who we are? The main part of who we are is our soul, our drive to do good, our ambitions, our ideas, our thoughts, our emotions, our strivings, our values, our character. That's who we really are. And that's where we should be investing the lion's share of our time. So that's true for sure in our lifetime. But even when we consider which part of us lasts forever and which part of us is finite and temporary, our bodies are finite and temporary, right? And I'm sorry to tell you guys, just based on looking at the screen and seeing who's here, uh, I don't think anybody here is under the age of 20. So I will go out on a limb and tell you that your bodies are only going to decline from now until the end of your life. However, your souls, if you work on them, will age like fine wine. <laughs> so don't get too attached to your body. In fact, if anything, you know, there's a beautiful teaching. It comes up in the book of um, the book of Exodus, when the Jewish people are still in Egypt. And the first time Moses and Aaron go to speak to Pharaoh and they say, let my people go. The first time Pharaoh says, no way, not a chance, not on my life. And also I'm, I'm about to make your work harder. And he says, you know how I used to give you the bricks to build the building? No more. Now you have to make the bricks. So the Jewish people come to Moses and Aaron and they're complaining, right? And they say, what did you do that you came to Pharaoh? You're making our lives worse. And they say, now they're telling us to make the bricks. Levanium means bricks. So one of the Hasidic rabbis, I don't remember which one, he interprets this allegorically. He says, Levanium also means white. Our white hairs tell us to do. When you see white hair, you know what that is? That's a message that your time left is finite and that you should get to work. You have a lot to do, right? God willing, we all have many happy decades left on this earth and we should fill them with good deeds. So you're right here, you know, I have some going on right there, my temples. <laughs> that we, I know, I know we're all women and we look at our wrinkles and our gray hair and we say, oy vey, oy vey, let me do something about that. And also I understand, you know, women want to look beautiful. That's fine. But also we should look at the physical signs of aging as a gentle and beautiful reminder that we are not our bodies. It's true. Our bodies are declining, but our souls are refining. So what are you going to be left with after 120 years? You're going to be left with your soul. You're not going to be left with your body, right? So don't rearrange the deck chairs on the Titanic. That ship is going down. 
spend the time investing in your soul because that is you. That is really you. And that is forever. So people who learn how to say no to their bodies for the sake of their souls are people who are investing in long-term investments. Okay. And then the commentary concludes, this seems an arduous way of life at first, but finally we reap the fruits of true achievement that remains for us for all eternity. When a person has spent years working on their souls and becoming better people, and I know so many of you have shared with me over the years how much Torah study has changed your life for the good, you keep at it, you keep investing in this beautiful commodity called your soul, just imagine what you will have to show for yourself in 120 years. Unbelievable. All the labors of your hard work, you know? My, uh, my daughter shared on our family chat the story of this 82-year-old woman. This guy tried to break into her house. And little did he know that she was an award-winning weightlifter. <laughs> I know. This super petite woman. And she, she's, there's a video of her telling the story. And she's like, this guy came in and he broke down the door. She picks up a table. She whacks him with a table. Finally, when the police came, this guy had to go to the hospital. She was fine. She goes to the, her gym and she's telling her story and everybody's clapping for her, right? <laughs> it's amazing. It's an amazing story. It's great. She's very strong physically and everybody's applauding her, right? So God willing, you guys, when we're all in our 80s and 90s, I want us all gathering together at the nursing home and we're going to share our spiritual strength stories with each other and we're going to clap each other on. <laughs> all right. So the overriding message of these verses, right? is that sometimes things seem really good and delicious in the short term, but in the long term, they're bad. We have to really look at the facts and ask ourselves, are we investing in our body or in our soul? Because our physical appetites can very often lead us astray and bring us to decisions that are not healthy or good for us because we want them to be right and we want them to be good, but they're not. And that if something seems too good to be true, it, it is. Okay, thoughts or comments on 25 and 26? Am I on mute, Brophy? You're unmuted, yeah. Okay. Um, I would just say that, um, you know, many of us, most of us have lost a parent and I just lost my father of blessed memory, you know, 12 days ago. Um, all you have to do is watch your parent sitting in a bed day after day after day, slowly leaving the planet who was, you know, very fit, a marathon runner, a biker, an athlete, with a full head of hair and, you know, you see what's left is like, is, you know, very little. And, uh, that's all, that all was important and his good health was important to him, but what's left are the stories and the memories and the love. There's nothing left, even the furniture and the shoes, there's nothing left. So I just, it's a, it's a reminder. So. That is so powerful, Sherry. Wow. Yeah especially having known your dad and having known how, you know, he was such a personality and he was so charming and good looking and all of this, you know, but I, I just loved hearing yours and Doug's stories about, you know, the real, the real, the real dad, you know, yeah. who, who he really was in his core and God willing, all of the beautiful stories and all of the good memories, those are all accompanying him in the next world. 
Yeah, and I do want to thank you. Amen. Thank you so much. And I do want to mention that in my family, I think in a lot of families, maybe this is a Jewish thing too, or just a a Western culture thing. You know, beauty is important, and you know, of course, we're supposed to physically. And I do come from a a lovely family. It's just a it's just something. You know, we had good teeth or hair or eyes. I have blue eyes. I don't know. People seem to love blue eyes. I don't get. You know, whatever. But so I was blessed with that. But. Um, what I wanted to say was, I don't know if everybody knows, but I had Bell's palsy during um, COVID and my, I woke up one morning and my whole one side of my face, I thought I had had a stroke and it all fell. And for three months, that whole side, I couldn't smile and it fell and it was paralyzed. And I really didn't believe the doctors that it was going to go back to typical. And it almost is at like 85, 90%. And you know, when you grow up like that and you are used to looking, you know, how you're, you're used to looking, it's very hard. And when you see your father, you know, pass it also, it just all puts everything into perspective, Bell's palsy and doesn't yeah. take just to put things in perspective, like your physical nature. Yeah. So. That's so powerful. And, um, it reminds me of, I, I had Lyme disease for two months, um, last year and, I, I, we were, we were comparing notes about, cause one of the symptoms of that I experienced, there's, no I, weird, but we both had that like droopy eye, remember? And no, even now, I still have it a little bit too. Yeah. Not that I spent hours staring in the mirror or anything like that. Um, <laughs> but like, I felt like it was such an unbelievable lesson when we finally figured out that I had Lyme disease and I had all these really weird symptoms. Like and the weird thing about Lyme disease is the symptoms travel all over your body. Like they, like for a couple of days, I couldn't use the muscles in my left hand. And then it moved to my right knee. And it was just, I remember one time I was just trying to spray deodorant with my left hand and I couldn't, I didn't have enough strength in my left hand to press the button. Um, and when I finally figured it out, I was thinking to myself, here is this like microscopic, you know, tick this tiny, tiny, tiny thing, which I didn't even feel. I didn't even feel the bite. I didn't even know that I had gotten a bite that caused so much havoc in my physical body. And I thought I was having a stroke, you know, and how actually we think as human beings that we're so strong and that our bodies are so powerful, but the smallest, smallest thing that goes awry can bring us to our knees you know, and it just, it's such a powerful reminder. I, I, I wish I didn't have Lyme disease and I wish you didn't have Bell's palsy. And, you know, I wish that nobody suffered from physical ailments, but it does serve as a very powerful reminder that our bodies are really very fragile. Okay. Any other thoughts or comments on 25 and 26? Okay, so let's move on to 27. We are turning now from the wise and principled person to the person who is the opposite, to the person who rejects their obligations, you know, and just does what they, what they want to do. Um, okay, so verse 27, um, an ungodly person, digs up evil, right? They look for it. And in his lips, there is kind of a searing fire. So we're referring here to a person who's two-faced. That means that their lips are speaking powerful words, 
but their bodies are not acting in accordance with it. Um, I was talking to a lawyer friend of mine and she, over COVID, she became a public defender and she was talking about um, some of the cases that she has gotten. And she said like, she gets a lot of shoplifting cases for some reason. And she's like, you would actually be astonished at the reasons people give themselves for why they steal things. She's like, there's this one person who came to her attention who um, she was at Nordstrom and she just took a package of something and just put it in her purse and walked out. You know, so first of all, she's like, don't people realize that there's such a thing called surveillance? Like you are going to get arrested the minute you leave the store, which she was, you know? And so she, the lawyer was talking to her client and she said, I'm just like, what were you thinking? You know? And she's like, well, I looked around and I couldn't find a sales girl. So I just took it. So she goes, you do know that's against the law, right? And she's like, well, I mean, maybe kind of <laughs> she's like, unbelievable. Like how how, how the stories that people tell themselves in order to do what they want to do, you know? And it's like the, the, the power of the human mind to make sense of the unsensible is unbelievable. So the commentary explains the master of Proverbs turns to the diametric opposite of the wise of heart, the ungodly and unprincipled person who entirely rejects moral obligations. These are the people who believe that the rules don't apply to them right? And we're not just talking here about criminals. I remember years ago, my kids and I and my nieces went to this um, amusement park in New Jersey. And I, I actually wrote a little article about it because I was so flabbergasted. There was a ton, there were a ton of people in line. It was like 95 degrees. And there was a whole school there with, with teachers. And the kids are like unabashedly jumping the line. And the teachers are watching and they're not saying anything. You know, and I'm like, what, what story are they telling themselves in their head? Like in whose universe are you not embarrassed to, to go in front of the line? You know, it, it, it really amazes me, I guess, because I have such a strong conscience, but, but the truth is we all do this for ourselves in certain areas. I mean, if you think about it, really, nobody should ever speed, right? And nobody should, um, I don't know, all kinds of little indiscretions that we do throughout the day that we tell ourselves a reason why it's not a big deal. Nobody's watching, nobody's here, nobody will get hurt, nobody cares. It's a dumb rule anyway. I don't believe in this law. You know, it's it's an immoral law that shouldn't exist. And, you know, all the things that people tell themselves. We all have things that we tell ourselves in order to do the things that we wanna do. Um, so this person rejects moral obligations and works clandestinely, meaning like secretly, to undermine his neighbor. That's the meaning of the expression digs up evil, right? That he works underground, so to speak, in order to hurt the other person. I, I cannot help but think of political campaigns when I hear this expression, digs up evil, right? I, I'm not gonna say that I'll never vote for somebody who does this because that means I will never vote again. But when I see political smear campaigns, when people run on a platform of digging up dirt on their opponent, I'm not impressed. Why would I want to vote for you because of dirt that you dug up on someone else? I want to vote for you because of the good that you dig up on yourself. What good are you going to do in the world? That's what I want to know when I vote for you. And if you think about the lengths that political campaigns go to, to dig up evil on other people to get the dirt, right? 
It's absolutely mind-boggling, mind-boggling. Imagine if they used that ingenuity and that creativity and that manpower and that money to do good in this world. Just imagine, right? Unfortunately, nice people rarely get elected. That's a whole other story. So the commentary ends up by saying, so this person who rejects moral obligations works clandestinely to undermine his neighbor while speaking words of burning love. So in person, I'll be like, oh my gosh, how are you? Yeah, so good to see you. And then in a two-faced maneuver, they'll go and badmouth that person behind their back, right? That's what, that's the expression, stab me in the back, right? That means that you're not being nice to me, but then you'll pretend that you're being nice to me. You know, uh, we have a son who's on the autism spectrum and he's extremely direct, you know, and it's so cute because sometimes like I, of course we have all these, you know, social conventions and people, you know, know that, well, that's, you know, that's inappropriate. You don't say that, but there is something so refreshing about just being direct. Um, so my son is, thank God, in a new school in New Jersey and thank God it's going really well so far which we're extremely, extremely grateful to Hashem for. I just have to pause and acknowledge that. So anyway, uh, there isn't a dorm in this school. So he's boarding with family friends and every Shabbat, he goes to my parents. So my stepdad is like the king of corny jokes. He's like the, he's like the dad of dad jokes. So um, the first Shabbat that my son went to their home, um, you know, they were about to, they're gathered on the table Friday night and my dad is about to make Kiddush. And my son says, um, Zadie, I just need to ask you something before we start. And he says, yes. So he says, will you be offended if I don't laugh at any of your jokes? <laughs> so my father, to his credit, he said, oh, don't worry, Nelson. There's a lot of people who don't laugh at my jokes. But we, we were all laughing so hard about it. I, you know, I was thinking how beautiful and refreshing that is, you know, because what do we do? We like laugh and we pretend that it's funny. And then afterwards, like, yeah, that wasn't funny. So he, my, my son is super straight up. He's not going to pretend, you know, that he thinks something is funny when it's not funny. And, you know, sometimes our social conventions are great and they keep the, you know, they, they lubricate our social interactions. And sometimes they're really just really fake. You know, I remember a friend of mine who made Aliyah and she moved to Israel and we were joking around about the lack of customer service in Israel, right? Because Israelis are super direct and they just tell you what they really think, you know? And she's like, I got to tell you the truth. She goes, when I go back to the States and I like go to the mall and, you know, there's this young, cute sales girl. She's like, hey, how you doing today? It's so good to see you. Let us know if you need anything, okay? You know, and then the minute she turns her face, the smile drops. She's like, I'll take Israeli directness, you know, instead of this American fakeness, you know, any day. And I'm like, I don't know. I kind of like the fake politeness. I'll take it. <laughs> but in a way, we all live in a two-faced world because we're polite and we're friendly. Well, gosh, it's so good to see you. Yeah, totally. And then some people, you know, present company excluded, uh, will turn around and badmouth that very same person. You know, so that, that's what this verse is talking about, that not only is this person digging up dirt on their neighbor, you know, and being so, you know, so, you know, not godly in their interactions, but then they go ahead and pretend with their silver tongue that everything's great and that, that they're best friends. And that's, that's makes it even worse. Okay. Thoughts or comments on 27.
Okay. 28. Okay, so here we're continuing on our theme of talking about, you know, people who do not live a life of wisdom and all the, or I should say all, some of the ways that people, you know, stir up trouble. Okay, so, and it's important to learn, you know, the different kinds of drama that people cause, not just so that we can be careful and avoid it in other people, but so that we can sniff out, you know, the rumblings of it within ourselves. Okay, 28. Um, a treacherously fickle person sows a quarrel. That means that he's um, like planting a quarrel. He's planting something that's going to grow, right? It grows, it grows later. So it's like the gift that keeps on giving. Veneer gun, mafrid aluf. And a, good, a grumbler separates good friends, right? Aluf, it's interesting, he translates here as good friends. Aluf usually means a chief, right? It's from the word Aleph. Aleph means like the first, the leader, the, the one in charge. So it's interesting that a person, I guess Aluf, um, we actually have this word used this way in the book Ethics of the Fathers, where it says that if somebody teaches you even one word of Torah, you have to respect and honor that person. And then it says that King David learned Torah from one person and he just one or two pieces of Torah and he called him his friend and his chief. So I guess it means like he admired him as though he would admire, you know, a leader. So I guess that's what the word aloof here is, you know, two people who admire and respect one another, that this person who is a grumbler um, can even manage to separate them. So it's actually scary to think about the power of one individual to create so much pain and to create so much drama and to separate people who like each other, right? And to sow quarrels and to make fights and to make drama, you know, that really like can go so far. We usually, I usually think of like, you know, sixth grade, seventh grade, like this kind of drama, but unfortunately it's really not unheard of in the adult world, you know? Um, my husband and I were trying to plan an event with a certain, a certain demographic in the community. And we were meeting with somebody who is kind of prominently involved in that segment of the community. And she said, listen, I just have to tell you that there's some political drama with this friend group. I said, what do you mean? She's so like, well, if these people come to the event, then those people won't come to the event. And if these people that my friends are coming in, if these people that are not my friends, I'm not, you know, and I said, well, that's not different from human <laughs> humanity as a whole, you know? I, I have definitely recruited, tried to recruit people for events, you know, and they want to see the registration list, you know, who else is coming? If my people are coming, I'm going to come. And if my people are not coming, I'm not going to come, you know, and to, to some degree, I totally get that. You want to know that you're going to be socially comfortable, but I think sometimes even, you know, it can go too far where I'm only willing to hang with my friend group or I'm only comfortable or, or, or if it's not my type, then I don't want to come because those are not, those are the people I don't want to hang out with, you know? So I think while to some degree, it's certainly understandable that people want to be in a crowd they're comfortable with. But I also think that in another sense, we do have to try and mature from the dependency that I can only be with a certain kind of person and that those are my people. And that's the only way that I'll feel comfortable. So, um, you know, we definitely want to look out, as I said, for rumblings of these tendencies within ourselves. 
Okay, the commentary on 28. The treacherously fickle person. So the Hebrew word for this is ish hamas. Now hamas is a very strong term, not related by the way to the terrorist group, although isn't that ironic? Um, also not related to Hamas, by the way. Okay. <laughs> um, but the word Hamas always means violence. It is really super ironic. Um, like during the generation of the flood with Noah and the flood, um, when the Torah describes what were the crimes of that generation that they deserve to be destroyed, and the Torah describes Hamas, and there it means violent theft. So we're talking about people who can be violently treacherous, maybe not with weapons, physical weapons, but with words and with opinions and with political and social power, right? And we know that it can cause just as much harm. The treacherously fickle person does a turnabout, hold on, does a turnabout with the truth and takes pleasure in provoking quarrels. So this is a person who, like we said before, they have no qualms telling lies, making up stories about people, right? And this can happen in person. It can happen on social media where people get destroyed and canceled because people make up stories about each other or they take something small and they make it into something very big and you can really destroy a person's life this way and takes pleasure in provoking quarrels. This is a person who enjoys the power of being like a puppeteer and getting other people to march to their orders, right? This is a person who becomes like drunk on power, on the ability to control people. The grumbler, so the Hebrew word for this is um, hold on one second. Veneer gun. Grumbler. I don't know what the root of that word is. The grumbler constantly complains and criticizes, right? Now, let me ask you a question. Are there often things to grumble about and criticize? Yes. There's always something that one can complain about and criticize. But the question is, are you going to be a criticizer or are you going to be the kind of people, the kind of person who sees the good, right? There's always going to be, you can complain about the lack of customer service, or why aren't there more people working the line, which is something I have complained about. <laughs> I have a very low threshold of tolerance with poor customer service, something I'm working on, right? Or you could look at the one or two people who are there and admire how hard they're working. You know, I was at a store yesterday and one of the customers was being really like objectively, like annoying. <laughs> She was asking a million questions and she was being so difficult. And I was feeling so bad for the guy who was working behind the counter. You know, and at first my brain was like, what's the matter with her? Like, why is she being like that? Like poor guy, you know? And then I decided to do a mind shift. And I was thinking instead about the guy behind the counter and I'm like, this guy's incredible. Look at him. He's so patient and he's so calm. I really, really admire him. Right. So you can always find the thing to complain about, or you can always find the thing to admire. And actually, after she left, I went over to him and I said, I want you to know I saw that whole interaction and you were amazing. You were so calm and patient. I really admire that, you know, and he really appreciated it. So the grumbler constantly complains and criticizes, keeping true friends apart by sowing suspicion and promoting hostilities. 
So this is the person who's always casting aspersions on other people. Oh, really? Do you really believe her that she's going to do that? Really? Is that what you really think? You know, and of course, this person who always, you know, like kind of has a negative slant, people are not going to look at them favorably either. People are going to look at them with a negative slant. You know why? Because nobody really likes people like that. They stay with them because they're afraid that they're going to be the next victim. So the loyalty to these people is not genuine. It's not coming from a place of admiration, right? It's coming from a place of fear. How can I not be in this friend group? Because then I'm going to be the next victim. So we want to try to stay far away, not only from people like this, but from our own tendencies to see the negative in other people, to complain, to criticize, right? And instead to look for the good uh, and try if we can to give the benefit of the doubt. Okay. Thoughts or comments on 28. So we have this wonderful word in Yiddish called kvetch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which seems to sum up. And I'm sort of thinking when the Yidden came out of uh, Egypt and they were in the desert, they did a fair amount of kvetching. They did. Oh, yeah. So, uh, yeah. It's. So you're saying it's a time-honored Jewish tradition. I, I know. <laughs> right. Yeah, and actually, I mean, this is why they were taken to task, even though it was a generation on a tremendously high level, you know, that had seen the Exodus and the Revelation at Sinai. Um, but because of that, they were expected to have a higher level of trust, you know, that God would work things out for them. And instead, they panicked and they were afraid. And because they were panicked and afraid, they complained. So, you know, again, something to think about for our own tendencies and behaviors. Okay. Any other final closing thoughts or comments? Okay. I want to wish you all a beautiful holiday of Shavuot and a Shabbat Shalom and a happy Memorial Day weekend. And thank you all for participating today. And um, I will see you next week. Hag Sameach. Shabbat Shalom. Hag Sameach. Bye, everyone. Shabbat Shalom. Take care.